them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Barnwell, Microsoft Legal Ops. Yeah, I actually have no ability to remember the lyrics to almost any song. Really? For me. Uh, Is that painful for you? No, it's, it's fine. L- lyrics cool. are basically just melody for me. The sound and yeah, the yeah. shape, but like words, you'll oh. just kind of scat or yeah, something. Exactly. Like the tonal qualities I can totally map yeah. to easily. My wife, though, she can do almost any song. It's amazing. Yeah. It's interesting. Some brain types. You have an MIT brain type. You can go into computational galaxies. You're computing right now in a galaxy I am very far away from. And I know that. I end up recalculating things from first principles all the time. So people will ask me a question. And I'll be like, well, let's break it down into pieces. Exactly. And like project, basically do modeling. Yeah. And then be like, hmm, well, if you did that. And so the, the funny thing is I am terrible at memorization. Really good at breaking down to first principles. First principles are always talked about in design, in tech design, in software. It's big at Netflix to break all of our ideas down. So I really appreciate the reverse engineering of a idea or end state back down. We do the same. And so Brad Smith, he's got a lot of titles these days. He's president and he's vice chair. I think he's also chief legal officer. He's big on principles. And the idea is if you give people rules, you're constantly chasing. But if you give people principles, you basically create some gravity wells that pull people in the right direction based on the situation. And so we end up do talking about principles a lot and trying to think about how we really design, I'd say legal solutions. And I don't mean actually like technology solutions. I mean, from a legal standpoint, what is our position here? What are we going to do? So yeah, same, same. Do you find that operating from a principles place and designing or co-creating forward from there and you give everyone a little bit of that space, as you're saying, to take it forward based on with them behind it does it take longer than a rules based or dictatorial way probably yeah well you can do a rules-based system and the challenge with that is you're mostly addressing the known knowns when you're doing rules and so there's a lot of trailing overhead that has to happen to keep updating the rules whereas the principles tend to be a little bit more adaptable to what shows up So it probably does take longer in the short term to develop principles. For example, a contract on some level is a recitation of all the things that have ever gone wrong that you then said like, well, we don't want that to happen. So they write it in. We drop another clause in, but they tend to be brittle. And all it takes is some kind of system change outside of your contract space. And then all of a sudden your clauses don't work well. So for example, if we have this theory of like force majeure, and then what happens if you have a pandemic and it's like, "Mm, this actually wasn't truly designed for these kinds of outcomes. And so it's really interesting to see, for example, where contracting is going, uh, strategic contracting, where you're seeing people move away from rigid rules-based approaches yeah, and more like, what is the relationship? We actually want to preserve that. My question is brewing as you're speaking. Is the practice of law a principles-based system or a rules-based system, or does it depend on The externalization we're talking about, what you just said about a contract is the rules and regs or as you call it, T's and C's Mm -hmm. of an agreement, of a relationship, of a situation. But what is law if we zoom out from that? When done well, it's probably principles based. And you see a version of that in the application of common law in as much as 
Yeah, there are allegedly rules. Yeah. If we're honest, there's a lot of guidelines that yeah. say like, this is what we want to accomplish. And there is a surprising amount of discretion and interpretation by a finder of law in, well, does this really apply? Yeah. But that's a really great question. I'm a little embarrassed. I've never really digested that more thoroughly before. Noodle on it and then noodle it. Just like noodle it. With a noodle in a pool, just yeah. swim around and float noodles. with it. Yeah. Totally. Cup of noodles it and I'll come on your podcast and then we'll keep talking about it because what you're getting at is, and what innovation means is moving away from the older way in a new way. If, if law and the externalization or the application, as you said, is more principles-based, where could we go? A natural outcome of what you're talking about is it lets you start thinking about designing for outcomes yeah. rather than constraints. Right. And so rather than saying like, what are all the rules I have to dodge? Yeah. It's more like, what are the principles what? I have to honor? And then I can get outcomes with greater, hopefully greater effectiveness and efficiency. It's also fixed first growth mindset exactly. in infinite possibilities mindset. You know, three companies back when I worked at Tanberg, the contracts, when they, I came in and they're like, find all the contracts. I was looking in people's drawers wow. in their desks in Norway. There were some there, but then I learned culturally it's a handshake contract culture. And so a lot of business oh, yeah. that stemmed from Norway out was handshake driven. I'm like, well, how do I put that in SharePoint? That's a good one. Yeah. Well, here's how we spent two and a half years integrating into Cisco and we just did a lot of this emoji, like hands up. Yeah. I don't know. There's just a portion of the business that they didn't know. And then they had to recreate some basic agreements to cover things so that we can do that transposition into Cisco's I hope by the end it was hugging face emoji. I think by the end it was, but it was for me because I escalated up into Cisco legal. And as I've shared with the community, had the ride of a career up that escalator. But as you know, too, in a lot of acquisition integrations, not everyone sticks around. Most people tend to go. A few survive. A few thrive. Very true. I'm glad we sat down and started talking on just like simple topics. We're kicking the ball back and forth, but I would expect nothing less from us, Jason. <laughs> we are just swimming in the ocean right now. Every day, just swimming in that ocean. Swimming in that ocean. So clocks over 2022 is in the bag. Wow. Wow. You're already in your active wear, ready to be active. I'm going to call it passive wear, but sure. But you could go. I could be active. Yeah. As almost none will know, I'm a full subscriber to uh, Lululemon bottom wear. So pretty yeah. much. At all times. Lululemon uh, bottom wear is so chic and has been my COVID wear. I have conformed onto the lemon and it's all lemon all the time. Since we now trickle back into the office, would you wear Lululemon pants into the office? I've worn Lululemon pants to this conference the entire time. Oh, geez, really? Yes. This is like your day wear. Yeah. Holy cow. And they don't have to look completely ridiculous. I mean, they look a little ridiculous, baby. So they've gotten a lot more hybrid pants. Like yeah. that's why I ask. And I think I'm like a cat. Remember when we were kids? Well, I don't know where you went to school, but when I was a kid, I went to public school for some years and I'd wear, there were regular clothes days where you were like jeans and a sweater and you were, and then there were like jogger days, kind of sweatpantsy days where you're just like, I'm phoning it in today. Fashion wise. And that was like once a month for me, I would just throw on jogger pants or sweatpants. I was phoning it in 
every day. Look, you're like a cool person and I'm a nerd person. And my attire, my Raymond, very much reflected that. Yeah. I, wasn't, I, I mean, it was non-irony three wolf shirt territory. Okay. It was really impressive. Completely unaware that I'm literally wearing a shirt that has wolves on it. Interesting. It's interesting. You call yourself a scribe nerd and you describe me as cool. I've always just, I think I'm a closet nerd. And I think nerds actually, the, I think the table, the seats have changed at the table. Nerds are cool. I mean, Elon Musk is like out there swinging right now and he's another king of the nerds. He's got some nerd power. I think you're right. I think there has been an, an inversion wherein a lot of people who have deep attention span for, for things yeah. have great economic opportunities because yeah. you can become a technical expert on a thing and yeah. that can be remunerated very well for it. Yeah. But the other thing that I think a lot of people don't understand about nerds is we have conviction. Yeah. And there is a bizarre charisma yeah. that comes from... It is bizarre charisma. It's that, bizarre. That's your next podcast title is Bizarre Charisma. <laughs> charisma. A journey through the galaxy of nerd brain. <laughs> I think increasingly people want to hear something that's real and yeah. true. And it takes a certain amount of courage to say something real and true. Yeah. And when you have to endure the nerd tournament and survive yeah. the social structure, you end up, I think, working your way through that. And eventually it's like, well, you can like it or love it, but this is what I am. The nerd tournament. Welcome to the oh, nerd wow. tournament. The one and only. The one and the only. Needs no announcement. Jay, um. Hello, hello. Sitting down and joining us in these plaid red chairs. Outside the Grand Ballroom in Bellagio's Convention Center. Welcome. So happy to see you. Happy to see you. Clock's over. Jason and I just started rapping on the nerd tournament, first principles thinking, the question of is law, the practice of law, a principles-based system or a rules-based system? Jay's like, okay, we're, she's warmed up and I went Lululemon pants hybrid into the workplace. My, my pants game is, is very tight. Yeah. yeah. I'm rocking the Lulus right so now. Here's Lulu pants right yeah. now. I am extremely jealous of you both. My Lulus are upstairs folded. I am in black skinny jeans right now, but at least they're stretchy. We're all wearing something with some stretch in them. That was a organizing principle. Organizing principle. For me. Yeah. For this clock. Very stretchy. Stretchy clothes, stretchy mindset. Absolutely. Yeah. A rule that you have to wear Lululemon pants. You're really working against the principle because you don't want to constrain yourself. There you go. And I think we're getting to the heart of the distinction here. Yeah. Principles are, I think, open to interpretation. Yeah. I think in... The volatile world that we live in, yeah. uh, the scale complexity that we're looking at, uh, the pace of change, kind of the paradigm shifting things that are happening in the world right now. The concept of rules to me always suggests rigidity. I think in the last 10, 15 years, there has been, I think, an over rotation in the legal services industry toward procedure yeah. and process. Yes and rules and policies. And part of that, I think, is people kind of grasping for some sense of security because things are changing so quickly. When really we need to actually fall back on principles and our judgments. And critical thinking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And being responsive yeah. to what we see in the world. 
I really think the greatest benefit that legal counsel can give, I think change agents can give is actually not just the ingestion of data and facts. It's actually noticing things. It's like being open to new observations, new facts as they arise, new viewpoints, new understandings, and then suggesting the best path forward for everybody, right? It's not just solving for yourself. Because I think that what we're seeing, certainly during the pandemic, certainly with the geopolitical tensions that we're seeing, some of the social kind of movements that are incredibly important. What we're seeing is that we need to consider and solve for way more viewpoints because we are living in an interconnected world. The model has to widen and all of our micro models of intake have to widen for more viewpoints. The macro models widening. That's the change we're seeing in the world. People get tired from the overwhelm of all this new data. Maybe if they had organizing principles. Yeah, but that's why they want the rules. I think a lot of people's brains are like, I'm tired. Just tell me what to do. I'm turning on the TV. Just tell me what to think. Yeah. And you know what? I think we have to have empathy for those people. I think we have to have empathy for that reaction, that response, because it is human nature to want order. Yes. So I think what we're seeing, though, within our industry, kind of within the corner of the industry, the kind of work we do, as well as in the greater kind of shifts in society are competing rules, competing viewpoints, competing systems of rules. When really what we need is probably systems thinking to refactor the organizing principles. And it's not about one viewpoint prevailing over another one rule superseding another rules and law at least as i see it on law and order svu one of our nighttime watches people think there's just a court of law and a right of wrong and they want to drive everything but what you're saying is there could be two right answers to things or there are dueling tensions pulling at something and we need more flexibility I want to reflect upon some failings I had as yeah. a, a younger attorney, yeah. but maybe highlight what you're talking yeah. about. So there were many instances where I would do a piece of legal work and, and it was in a transactional yeah. context. And what I would try to do was to win the deal. And what I was doing was harming the relationship that was actually more important than that one little thing. I was not drawing the boundary of value broadly enough around what we were doing. And I think we see that happen all the time where For example, we as an organization might take an adversarial position with a regulation or something else. And we don't actually think about like, okay, well, why is this happening? Like, why is this person asking for this thing? What is this need? And is there another option that serves their ends, but also serves our ends? And so I'm wondering, Jay, is that close to what you're getting at or something else? Yeah, no, I think that goes to the heart of what I'm saying. So we often say start with why. That was a very popular mantra that people maybe repeat without fully thinking about it, but whether it's a human being that is standing in opposition to you, whether it's a outdated system, a legacy system or a new regulation, it's essentially standing in opposition to something you're trying to accomplish. To me, the why is about the underlying intent. Anything we do, we're doing for a reason because we're trying to accomplish something. And then so instead of like, right or wrong, or there being two right answers or three right answers, I think it is actually a question of what's the underlying intent? What's the goal? And then what is the optimal way to get there? And then what are the second order impacts on people that might be affected by what you're trying to do? And then how do you actually solve for maximum good for the maximum number of people? 
what is the optimal kind of path forward? So instead of a binary thinking about that's correct or that's not correct or that's in compliance or that's not in compliance. I know where you're going. You're (laughs) going to pull a Pareto on us. You're going to go 80-20. Yeah, I think it's about hierarchy of priorities. Okay. How about that? I think when we start cooperating and creating a shared agenda of a hierarchy of priorities, and then I, I think that actually reduces the number of points of contention. So I think it is about stepping back and really asking what it is we're trying to accomplish, whether it's a law department, a law firm, a corporate enterprise, or the court system, or a society at large. What you're talking about is really the basis of, am I going to engage in collaborative bargaining or positional bargaining? And both can work, but in repeat playing scenarios, I think you need to be thoughtful about what happens if you choose one of those systems. And like what, as you said, what are the second order effects of the choice of going with positional bargaining? hundred percent. So something that's been on my mind a lot lately is the concept of trust. I think what we have seen in this industry, just because of the commercial pressures that's been placed on law departments, placed on law firms, I think what we have seen is a system-wide erosion of trust across the supply chain. I think we see that actually in the broader corporate realm. There's been an erosion of trust between corporations and consumers. There's an erosion of trust between governments and the body politic. And then so I think one of the bigger questions we have to ask is how do we restore that trust? How do we heal and repair trust? Because one saying, I think it came out of like an Amazon, one of their management principles is that trust is earned in drips and lost in buckets. And then so rebuilding that trust really requires commitment from all parties toward a collective solution. Can you give an example of trust erosion between corporations, corporations and consumers, you said? Yeah. If you look at some of the trouble that Wells Fargo has had with their policies around like opening new accounts without customers knowing, if you look at some of the food labeling disputes that have come up, In that kind of category of nutraceuticals, right? They're not pharmaceuticals. It's not food. But even food, there's this feeling that corporations don't care about people. What is maybe the mandate of the law department? Instead of just thinking about regulatory risk, instead of thinking about investigative risk, what is actually the gain creation that can be had by helping a corporation restore that trust with consumers? Like in formulating kind of the legal review, the policies, like, the product counseling that has to happen in this age of really rapid innovation. Because some of it is that you're moving very fast. Science and technology are moving really fast, right? Moving fast. Yes. Yes. So it is not actually about saying no. It is about weighing, like I was saying. It's not about right or wrong, correct or incorrect, compliant or non-compliant. It's about if we do this and we do it in this way, what are going to be the first order impacts in terms of our relationship with the government and the regulators. But what about our relationship with our customers? What about our relationship with our suppliers, our partners? And it is actually taking that long-term view. Jason, what you were saying about maybe taking a broader boundary in the definition of value and understanding that we have to live together past today, past this deal, past this product launch, that you have to protect the relationships that are built on trust and repeat transactions. And then so I think it is about broadening that thinking. 
great example and great riff on trust, which was a big theme, I think, in all of our session threaded throughout, like how do we build trust with one another as peers here, colleagues back in our legal departments, changing people, changing a system. This is about changing an institution into the next iteration, better version of itself. And how do you put trust in the center, in the hub, and have all of this new stuff spoking out of it and make things with all the tension that's in there? Rules versus principles. I think that makes a lot of sense. It it has been a privilege for me to be here and kind of watch the interactions, like the big reunion of this um, amazing community, really, that has come together very quickly. If you think about the grand scheme of things, it's a young community and the strength of the bonds I see here are really something. But, you know, I think the last two years has reminded all of us that human connection is incredibly important. I think people have been lacking that for quite some time. And really, I I think a lot of people are doing some deep thinking about what it is we're missing. Deep thinking. I mean, that's great resignation is the externalization or it's like all the atoms inside are just bouncing around the cell. Deep thinking and a lot of movement. Well, and it is easier to depart a unit when you don't have bonds with the unit, like getting very tactical. So it is interesting to observe how people are coming into organizations and they're not getting the really the close quarters connectivity, the yeah. connectivity that comes from close quarters interaction. Yeah. And then I don't think they feel as bound to it. And so the other challenges, the stuff gets kind of rocky. I think they're like, I'm just going to go. They don't try to work it out. Yeah. The people, they've gotten antsy and markets have changed. Markets have shifted. Labor markets have shifted. The wage has shifted. Of course, inflation and everything, but salaries went up. It was an observation I saw because of the movement, the number of open roles and the supply and demand of it all. It's just an interesting kind of box of factors we're living in. 100%. So I have a slightly different theory about what's happening with the great resignation. Is It's not in conflict with your view. But if you think about that construct that when you disagree with something that is happening in a system of which you're a part, you have three options. Exit, voice, or loyalty. Yeah. Yeah. And then so going back to what you're saying, when we are in virtual working environments, when we maybe have team members that we've never met in person, we only know them as kind of a face in a box on the screen. Actually, the option to voice your objection is taxing-esque. And riskier. Yes, riskier. And then so if you don't have the means to kind of graft loyalty onto teams by means of social connection, that happenstance kind of a connection that happens when teams are co-located, when the cost of voicing objections is higher and you have the market dynamics that Jen's talking about, where the comp is going up because it's certainly a, a seller's market for talent right now. But to me, I also think that I would go back to the point about the erosion of trust. One of the things I see in and out of our industry is the breaking of long-standing social compacts yeah. between institutions and individuals. Social compact. Let's go. I think the age is long past when people spend their entire careers with one institution. I think that is already exception rather than the rule. Yeah, I think that's going to end on that age. Yeah. And then so how do we solve for some of the bonds of loyalty. Yeah, I was going to say, what's the new loyalty? Because yeah. loyalty hasn't gone away. 
it's just transformed. Yeah, I think that's why values-driven management is so important because you have to actually quickly create trust and loyalty. Yeah. So I do something fairly, maybe it's atypical with the people I mentor and I sponsor. I'm very direct with them and I say- You're like, I'm going to manage you out to your better job in two years. Kind of winking. The thing I say is my investment in you is not conditioned upon the organization in which you're in. And if you choose to stay, you should expect my support. And if you choose to go, you should still expect my support because I see value in you as a person. And what I'm doing is I'm trying to take a long view and I'm trying to draw a value kind of boundary at a much bigger system. In an individualized way. It is. So in a social compact between me and you, what kind of way if I work for you? But it also means that we're not in a positional bargaining situation where you have to stay to continue to benefit from the relationship. So I would put another dimension to that. One of the things that I think I've consistently said to my direct reports, so many people I've recruited in the various organizations where I've had the privilege of building teams is that because of my worldview, I don't believe that people should stay in one place. And that's not a viewpoint that we can impose on anyone anymore. I kind of think about it like this. There's a compact that you and I each have with the institution. There is a value exchange between the enterprise and the employee. Yeah. And then there is a social compact between the manager and the direct report. Sure is. And then so I think one of the greatest things that leaders can do at any level is commit to making your people more valuable. Yes. And well said. My kind of throwaway line is, I bring people into our terrarium knowing they will outgrow the terrarium. a hundred percent. And they will have to go get a job. Yeah. I will support them on the way out. That's innovation with people as your products. I'm going to just mix it up here a little bit. Throw you a curveball. I love Larry Richard's research about lawyer personality. I tend to think it's really misapplied often. I like to challenge the prevailing thinking a little bit. So 100% lawyers test as very high autonomy. They value the autonomy. But I think that within the context of legal business, on the buy side or the sell side, I think we conflate that a little bit with resistance to change and their resistance to whatever specific idea we're proposing. I've had the privilege of supporting and working with extremely talented teams of lawyers in trial settings and in contentious settings and in deal settings. Some of those deals, some of those cases don't come together without teamwork. And in their craft, in what they do, actually the best lawyers are not over-indexed on autonomy. They certainly have intellectual autonomy. And I would characterize it as a battleground of ideas because that is how you find the sharpest argument. That is actually how you find the most creative deals. I think, though, often we have like such internal orientation sometimes and how we're trying to run the legal business, how we're trying to run the legal organization within the enterprise. And in terms of how their workplace is organized, I actually don't think that lawyers display any kind of super extra elevated resistance to change as compared to other populations. I think what is actually different is that they are extremely skilled in raising objections. How they resist is, I think, what is different. But I don't actually think that's intrinsic to the lawyer personality. So 100% on that. So I used to work pretty closely with David Howard, who uh, used to lead our litigation team. 
And he was a brilliant litigator. I mean, he did like crazy stuff, like Iran Contra style. He, he's awesome. And he would say like, look, lawyers, they will always use the toolbox. And so if you want them to do a thing and you give them a chance to basically advocate, that's what they're trained to do. Yeah. And so they will advocate for the other thing. I really do want skepticism on this one. A characterological trait that I think I see in lawyers that for me has helped explain some of the behavioral gravity I've seen is we index so thoroughly on client service that we often serve the urgent and we don't always take the time to slow down and really, really diagnose what is the important. So then what happens is we get on this weird hedonic treadmill. Treadmill of urgent. Uh, yeah. And oh, the client is happy because I got the thing back really fast and like, I, I need to get this. And so then we don't think about the long game on this. And they resist change in normal ways, but for, I think, maybe different kind of a value scheme that they're serving. But I invite pushback on this. I don't have pushback. I, I actually think I have maybe a refinement. Please. So the nature of legal buy has changed drastically in the last 20 years. Drastically in the last 20 years. So really, this is one of the reasons I was like deliriously happy when I was running pricing strategy at Baker's. Because my mind just like thrives on the complexity. And yeah. so from that seat, I got to see kind of all permutations of legal buy in so many jurisdictions and so many like different markets, different kind of value spectrum of the mandates in question. And then so, you know, one thing that really crystallized in my mind when I was in C is that for decades, I mean, it's still a relationship based business. It's still a people business. It's extremely scarce expertise applied to, you know, relatively high stakes questions, whether it's the specific question, the matter at hand or the kind of systems risk in the aggregate. So it's a people business, but it used to be a lawyer to lawyer relationship. It used to be a point to point relationship. And then so what the commercial pressures in the last 20 years have done is try to press that into an enterprise to enterprise institutional relationship. And then there's a struggle, I think, now when when firms try to hear the voice of the client, there's many things happening. There's things that individual instructors at a large enterprise think they want. There are things that the enterprise, the the client enterprise actually needs. And there's some distance sometimes between how those two needs, wants and needs are expressed. And then a third kind of layer a different substrate of complexity is that what the enterprise is able and willing to pay for sometimes is also a third factor. And then so threading that together in a trust-based ongoing relationship is a very tricky challenge. Or in a principles-based way, if I can add that to that, versus a blind rules-based way, which you and I riff on this a lot. You've taught me a lot of perspective on billing guidelines Mm -hmm. and how to really fine-tune them for where your enterprise and law firm relationships are now versus some set of rules you downloaded from the clock website that exists because, okay, great, clock aggregated them at one time, but it's not a recipe you follow or an attempt to standardize across an industry that's not realistic in a marketplace. 100%. I think the word I would use is suboptimal. I mean, I'm a huge supporter of templates, of guidelines, certainly that speeds the professionalization of a new role. And that is a valuable function that clock plays. But in terms of just downloading 
the model guidelines, like one thing to remember is that when such templates are compiled, they usually cover every permutation of something you could do. They, What's and, your and earlier they, statement right. on the contract as, a rules, based, as right. a rules based permutation of law? It's a list of T's and C's of everything that once went wrong. Right. And so you can't actually take all of it. The challenge, I think, for uh, new legal operations professionals, like if it's a new role for you and a new role for the enterprise, it's extremely important. Like your primary function as a first person in role is to actually impose human judgment by actually speaking with humans, your your stakeholders, the people who live in that enterprise to figure out what is important to us. What is it that we need to prevent or what? behaviors we need to drive right now because first of all you can't change everything about everybody all at once i want to express a challenge we have atomized basically budgets they're held by <laughs> very small buckets on like on this edge and we give people discretion with how they will use their budget and then we ask them to operationalize this larger framework of yeah. like preferences and then they know for many reasons, one, they're busy Two, what we might be asking for might not. I think there's many reasons. Yeah. And I'm curious, how should we think about that to optimize? So I'm going to introduce like a related idea that I think is going to actually make this work. So we are living in a weird time where technology is becoming more and more of a tool, but often it's a barrier because we don't know how to use it or we don't know how to integrate it. and the place where I think the greatest point of friction is, is where do we delegate to a rules-based processing of information, which is what machines do best? And then where do we actually protect human judgment? Of course. And the ability to respond to ambiguity. And then so I think that one of the things that has happened in legal by that I think has been to the great detriment of every single player is over rotation on granularity. And part of that is because we want to transact business. We want to leave a digital exhaust of the way we transact business so that we can harness the power of machines to help us understand kind of all the messiness that happens with human endeavor. That's actually what law gives order to is human endeavor, right? Commercial endeavors. So I think that what that has done is kind of focus human attention on the most pedantic aspects of what we do. And that has been, I think, a unintended consequence. And we are seeing that play out in a lot of different ways. Exactly what you're saying about budgets. One of my most unpopular opinions is that I don't believe the billable hour will ever go away. No, I don't think it should. As a method of transacting high-end expertise in needs that are not fully known or understood, by buyer or seller. Yeah. It is the simplest way to transact business. It is time. And time some, equals money. Yeah. And something that people don't really think about is that the billable hourly rate, that is actually a blended weighted average in and of itself. That's an estimation that we put on, let's say, an aggregate amount of value this one timekeeper fearner might create in a given year. We kind of estimate how many hours that they'll work and then It's just an average because we understand that value is created in these like disparate, unpredictable moments. There are moments of insight in legal work. I think 30 seconds, five minutes. I think that sometimes are worth tens of millions. There's a lot of drudgery that actually is required to get you to that moment of realization. 
And as I use that example because sometimes there is a logical reasoning that happens where you take something general and then you break it down. That's really kind of the process of analysis. And then there are other types of thinking that you do where you take specific instances and then you form a general theory. And I think that we've done great disservice by not focusing on synthesis, on inductive reasoning, on empirical reasoning. I think that we have over rotated toward splicing things into smaller and smaller buckets. And then so I always say value is not created in six minute increments. Trying to actually police how each six minute increment is spent, I think, is an ill-advised endeavor. It's busy work. Yeah. Yeah. It's like what's coming out of it. Back to the trust thread to pull that through. And we've said this to each other. Who am I to get between the trust that exists between the in-house lawyer, the senior litigator, and the partner at the firm who have a relationship that this matter is maybe based on? And there's trust that the six-minute increments are being used to the firm's best judgment. Who am I to be in there policing that or trying to regulate and put rules around it? You know, I thought about what you said to me. You said that to me, I I think, a couple weeks ago. And so I think this is a topic really worth considering. And I've had some distance from my last brief, you know, at Baker's. And really, I look back on it. I think that is an incredible level of trust that institution placed in me to kind of be appointed to drive like negotiations and represent the interests of the entire Varine. So instead of like asking who am I to get in between the actual counterparties in a relationship, I actually think my most successful moments in that role were facilitating the repair of trust, the building of trust, rather than the erosion of trust. Yeah. So I would actually say that legal operations professionals, especially the ones focused on the commercial side, the supply chain side, I would say you have an immense opportunity to actually make positive change in how legal business is transacted between humans. And I think it's really incredibly important for people in those high scale roles, high scale roles by that. I mean, like Baker McKenzie has 6,000 timekeepers. And then there, obviously there are thousands and thousands of like file manager to instructor relationships in an institutional relationship. Understanding that when you agree to commercial terms or outside counsel guidelines, that you are affecting the daily work context of thousands of people and really giving that some thought and taking like a human-centered approach to your job and understanding that can we create guidelines that actually help people work together? I have to tell you that the word that keeps coming in in my head listening to you both is legal ops professionals need clinical skills because to get to this, you're trying to understand the midpoint between two entities to people representing two businesses exchanging something. And the more you can understand, negotiate, be a middle man, be a middle woman, be a middle person. That's clinical. That is active listening. That is EQ. That's not me imposing an agenda. It's facilitating and then going, what is best for the business I'm representing, right? Because we're all hired into a business to represent the business's interests. And I think that's a lot of the themes we tried to weave through some of the workshops here this week and sessions and your panel today, it's about people and skills and EQ and trust and understanding. So a lot of people who come to our game come from procurement and finance backgrounds. Yeah. I think what they've been rewarded for historically was really microscopic positional yeah. outcomes. 
And so then we put them into the mix and there's yeah. some damage done and then yeah. we're surprised. Yeah. And so I think you're right that we probably need to arm those people to be more successful by augmenting those really valuable technical capabilities yeah. with some of those relational capabilities. And we probably need to start off with giving them the why. Because I can tell you, like, you know, I've led some teams and there were people who were fantastic technical operators from that. Yeah. They will hammer people yeah. on the price. Getting them to understand the why, like we're going to be repeat players on this. Let's take the long view. Getting them there was not trivial. It's work and it's leading without authority and influencing and opening up the space. Ask starting with why. It's curiosity. That's letting them go first. That's work and it takes time. So I love that word influence. Yeah. I think one of the things I see kind of poisoning the well for many change agents is that over time they get worn out and because they're often their sphere of accountability exceeds their sphere of control, then they try to actually make themselves smaller. Um, I've struggled with that at points in my career. Do I just shrivel here and take a step back? How and when do you push and the timing of it all inside your business? By the way, I honored the rules. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a question of influence. How do you expand your sphere of influence. And it is about trust and credibility as a professional, as a colleague, as a peer to your internal stakeholders. Do they trust your judgment? Do they believe that you're committed to helping them achieve the outcomes that they've set out for themselves, that the enterprise has set out for itself? Do they believe that you're on their side? And then even your suppliers, and they want to help. I think that presumption of positive intent in all our interaction yeah. as change agents is incredibly Core important. ingredient. Because when you vilify people who resist the change that you're fighting for, that's a recipe for bitterness. It's yeah. a recipe for burnout. It's a recipe for alienation. And then that's actually going to speed that process of people making themselves smaller. And I, I don't like to see that. Yeah. So it is about intense listening. Which takes intense amounts of time. Which is the opposite of what we think we need to do in a business. We're all in a hurry. But to answer your idea here, what I do to build trust and show my judgment is give it time. And I commit and I'm loyal to the social compact with me and say my company right now and Netflix. And when if the compact starts waning, like I think it did for everyone in COVID in those dark moments, I happen to have gone to an exec retreat during that and We actually read philosophy texts that touched on the social compact and we all looked at each other like the Spider-Man meme and we're like, oh, we know why we're here. And we all renewed our purpose in that moment. And we have to have those moments. So I think time to build that trust and credibility and I think experiments. So one of the experiments that we run, so somebody comes to us and by the way, we are the worst customers ever. We're just really we're tough. You're pedantic. You know, but one of the things we do is like, hey, we want to do some things. And what we will do is we will say, all right, we have a project. And it's often something that's kind of squirrely or weird, or maybe even a little ambiguous. But what we will often do is not negotiate aggressively on it. Yeah. We will basically see like, how do they respond? Do they actually take the opportunity to try to create value on both sides? Or do they engage in positional bargaining? Yeah. And that gives a signal that helps us understand, is this really worth investing in at a bigger scale? Yeah. Because if they can't do that on something that yeah. small. Do it small, then it fails big. That's a classic economics for you. Jay is wincing, so I'm curious. One challenge. Actually, the reasoning I, I think is 
good, but then I think that last inference may not be sound always. Sometimes your outside suppliers need sufficient size in the transaction to go the extra mile. Because one thing that I think I've been thinking about a lot is I've spent a lot of the last 10 years, you know, because I have immense interest in legal tech and adoption of technology in the world. I've been thinking a lot about the human machine interface. And then during COVID, I started thinking more about like the human human interface. And how are we solving for that when so much communication is now digital? We're putting so much more tech between us. We're like, build more trust. Text me later, Jay. So human, human interface. But one spin I put there that I think is really mind bending is that people in roles like ours kind of stewarding huge, complex relationships between institutions and enterprises. We really have to think about scale complexity in those human, human interactions. And then so what I tell you now is that buyers of legal services generally lack empathy for their providers. I don't think that's like a personality thing. It's just very few people on the in-house side have visibility into some of the things that I've seen. So I'll just give you one number. To get to a billion dollars of revenue in a year, and there's about 40 firms globally that operate at that scale, you're servicing six to 20,000 clients, active clients in a given year. So just the amount of variation that firms have to handle to acquiesce to client requests is immense. Wow. And then so when you ask firms to do one new thing, like for you, it's like an interesting experiment and it's worth pursuing. We want partners who are invested in that and that's your prerogative. And I 100% support that. But when you say that, you see providers struggling with that. Well, how are they going to do that on a bigger scale? At scale. Because actually... Like could break their business. Well, yes. If you do it 20,000 different times. But if you can formulate an experiment with sufficient size that has something in it for them where the commercial incentives align and they can actually create the space for yeah. their teams, create the time and attention of the right people to put on that project... Sometimes I think you might have a better results. You're probably right. So I think it's worth thinking about. But the spirit of experimentation, I think that's again, comes back to trust. One of the things that I've always wanted to have a broader, more open conversation with folks on the buy side in business operations and legal roles is preferred provider programs don't work if you are not a preferred client of the firm. It's a value exchange. Are you giving that supplier enough value? And so I think kind of thinking about how, and it's not about people. It's not because they're bad people on either side. It's actually, it's business. So can you align? Can you actually create commercial terms? Can you structure the relationship so that it's to both parties' interests to wade in these unfamiliar waters, to share organizing principles so that you can navigate ambiguity? For shared gain? The answer is yes. And it's in the future, though. And we have a lot of iterations and at least how we do legal to legal services purchasing. We have a lot of work to do to get there. You see some of these newer tech startups trying to scratch at that and go, we'll bring the two parties together in the document. We'll reveal the gives. But how do I wrestle that out of a Hollywood lawyer's hands? Their gives are there swords and their lasers and their fire starters 
sometimes I ask myself, who am I to take that out of their hands? I have to show them just the next iteration of that. And sometimes I have to hold the vision as a secret, like close to the vest, if they're not ready to see it. Because I don't always earn credibility cranking on vision. Not everyone can see in 30 years ahead, 20 years ahead where commerce will happen. I think for you and what you're talking about, that framework of building your credibility and and making sure that you are an effective change. Yes. I love that, by the way. I love that. One framework I would suggest is that there's wholesale communication that needs to happen for change and there's retail work. That's like the human to human interaction interface that I'm talking about. And then for legal operations professionals, I really think that it is important to make friends, not enemies. hundred percent agree. Make friends, not enemies with your insourced workforce. They are lawyers. I would really advise people to think twice before they really, because like generalizations about lawyers, I kind of think is a really easy way to hotwire connection. Hotwire connection with people who have experienced that frustration. Cynicism is also a way to hotwire, like a temporary feeling of superiority. But the adversarial undertones in the end are not going to serve your ends. No, they're not. I have to get running to my 90 minute massage appointment soon. So I kind of want to bring this all to a point here. But and I want to hear what you're each reading right now or something you've read recently that is a poignant and kind of ties into something we can take away here related to the themes. I'm reading a book called A Fortress in Brooklyn. It's the history, the real estate, and the rise of the footprint of Hasidic Williamsburg in Brooklyn, New York. And the one word I'm getting, I'm halfway through the book, is politics is everything. And I don't just mean voting for your president and your local people, but politics, the system of people and and the influence that can happen there. And I, I think politics exists inside any system of people in any organization we've all worked in. Whether you say we have politics or not, it's there. And how do you influence people in a system and gain followership and credibility and they buy into the value of what you have on a retail level, on a wholesale level? And follow you up the mountain part of the way while you're there in the social compact during that time. And trust that you have the best interests of the business at heart, not your own. And in the politics is what made that neighborhood in a part of Brooklyn a fortress with walls up to protect it, with doors to get out and, and survive and thrive and expand the Jewish race at the time. That neighborhood is a response to the Holocaust. We're going to fortress it up. We're going to multiply our race because there was a bit of a loss and during the Holocaust and making a face. That's so profound. And I do think just to respond to that very briefly, you know, I think this idea of self-interested action, I think we actually have to call that rational action. And really it's the job of leadership in any organization yeah. is to better align the interests of the institution. Yeah to the individual interests of the actors working inside it and alongside it and doing business with it. And that is something where the legal function has an immensely important role to play. Immensely huge potential impact, positive impact. So I think that's really thought provoking. So I'm going to cheat and talk about two books. One book I finished and it just like changed my life. It's called 4,000 Weeks. Oh, yes. Time management for mortals. So the just Very brief spoiler, 4,000 weeks is the average lifespan 
I'm actually quite good at math. I'm like known for being good at math. And that number gotcha. <laughs> yeah. It's thunder. like, wait, what? Your what? whole roadmap now, prioritization model is on a 4,000 yeah, week urgency timetable. It is. Yeah. And when I think about, I'm privileged to have many opportunities for interesting projects. Yeah. I have too many interesting projects. Yeah. But when I think about like, all right, it's a 24 week project. 24 weeks is 1% roughly of the time I have left on this beautiful, gorgeous earth. Um, size of project, resources yeah. available. Is, does a solution exist? Yeah. Distance to mortality. Yeah. It's fifth column. Yes. And I really encourage people to read it and then to think about it yeah. because it actually gives immensely sharp relief to questions of prioritization and yeah. what really, really matters to you. Yeah. And so I think that's been a profound book. The book I'm reading right now is The Changing World Order by Ray Dalio. And it really, really speaks to me because folks don't always know that I, I did not have an economics background. I yeah. did not come from a STEM background. I'm like humanities all the way. I was a history major. Humanities all the way and you live, you see STEM. You're the woman in the GIF that sees all the algorithms and the limits, limit proofs. That's you. History major. So um, I'm like the the STEM major who's like the artist in residence of legal ops. So this is why we swerve so well together. Yes, 100%. I've always believed that history goes in long arcs. Yes. It's not that history repeats itself. It's that huge patterns repeat themselves yeah. and the the amazing insight that I've already gotten from this book is that people don't experience these big swings in a single lifetime yeah. and then so they fail to learn and internalize lessons from these huge patterns that repeat and it's really about understanding the causality the drivers of certain social forces certain economic developments when things swing too far this way, yeah. then, you know, then the second order impacts on social behavior, on social organization, then lead to kind of political polarization. Uh, here we are. And like, we've seen that many, many times in history. And then so it's not a recipe, yeah. like we were saying, yeah. but it is absolutely a useful cognitive tool to generate system, scenarios. And systems yeah. analysis and thinking. Yes. And to suggest, oh, perhaps if we try to stem this force yeah. from pressing too hard on the system like can we stem the tide yeah. of negative things we don't want it everything is a regression analysis yeah. turns out <laughs> and uh, for me that collapses to what is the system boundary that you're optimizing within yeah. it's the same thing and we were talking about like line operators see so much of the system and yeah. a leader that one of their jobs is to help people see more of the system you're just drawing a different boundary which is really on some level temporally but it's variations on a theme yeah exactly Jason, your book, your tie-in. I'm going to go a little orthogonal. The book that I read a while back that really kicked off a whole lot of weird thinking was this book called Exhalation by Ted Chang, which is a bunch of short stories uh, that are science fiction. And what it really got me thinking about a lot was entropy. Yeah. It put me on this crazy kind of like just deep dive. Of, it really has shaped a lot of my thinking about what we have to start solving for scale. Yeah. Because literally I started thinking about a lot of what we're doing in almost thermodynamic terms, which is yes. weird, but and like it tracks. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. but like that is driving a lot of my thinking. So, and it's a really interesting set of stories. So I'd recommend it. Sci so I'm also, I am reading 4,000 weeks right now. So we got sci-fi, we kind of got the biz development, 4,000 weeks. We have 
history, Jewish nonfiction, power of community development. And I think we've touched most genres except for romance. Romance has not hit, but maybe when I come on your podcast, we'll see if anyone's reading romance and if there's themes we can extrapolate from that. I'll put that on my to-do list. Thank you both for coming on the Clock Talk podcast and wrapping us up at CGI 2022. See you out there.